0: chapter 3, 1 through 7, so if you'll turn there with me. Father, we know that your word is powerful. We are sustained by it. The universe is sustained by it. Uh, Even the fires of judgment are restrained by it. We turn now to that same word which you have given us through your apostles and prophets. May it have its effect on us. May it powerfully change the way we live. Let us be so captivated and controlled by your word throughout our lives, that the things of earth grow ever more strangely dim. And by your word and spirit, soften hard hearts, illumine uh, dim eyes, and, and move idle hands to action, we pray. All of this by the name of Christ, amen. amen. Let's stand to read God's word, Second Peter 2, or 3 rather, 1 through 7. that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is God's word. You may be seated. We read Psalm 1 earlier for call to worship, and I'm going to read it again. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Over the years, I've kind of come to see Psalm 1 as the psalm of location. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands not in the assembly of the scoffers, but rather, he he sits under the law of the Lord. That is his location. That is where he dwells. And then you have this imagery of the tree planted by streams of water. That's where he is, where the wicked are not firmly planted, but are like chaff. And their location is, is not steady. They blow away. It's important to keep in mind Peter's purpose in writing this letter is uh, not really... <laughs> We can view it sometimes like a a verbal body slam of the false teachers because it's very strong, but that's not his purpose. Peter's purpose is to warn the saints against false teachers that they not follow the false teachers. The letter is to the saints. In other words, he wants to ensure that they remain firmly planted in the delight of God's word. He does not want them to walk in the counsel of the wicked or to sit in the seat of scoffers. I think the great danger for the people of God has always been that they would be whisked away by philosophies or the prevailing cultural winds of doctrine. So we see in the Old Testament, get, get rid of the Canaanites completely so that you are not carried away by their gods. And that was the great danger in Peter's day. That's the great danger in our day. So by this message, it's my hope that any among us who may be tares, among the wheat would be warned of impending demise, and moreover, I pray that true saints among us would be encouraged to persevere this morning, because it's God's word which does disdain true believers. So let's look begin in verse one. He, he begins, "This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved." Now, we would presume, but we don't know, that the first letter was, uh, first Peter, and, and people go back and forth about that. Um, but really, one commentator pointed out, and I think this is really insightful, is what we need to learn from this statement is not so much which letter is he talking about, but the imperative importance of the subject matter that it was so important to Peter, he wrote a second time, <laughs> the same thing. His repetitiveness is seen here in the importance of the topic, and also the love which he has for the saints. He calls them beloved. As I said, this letter contains strong words, and forceful arguments, and and he's come down really hard on the false teachers, and in fact proven them to be enemies of a biblical gospel. But none of these uh, arguments or forceful words were issued forth from a spirit of arrogance or a desire on Peter's part to be right or to win a battle or to win a following to himself. They've come from a sense that the contents of this letter are urgent, an urgent need for the community of the saints to which he writes. Because he loves them, they are his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's concerned for them, for their spiritual and eternal well-being. We should take note to follow Peter's example here. Peter is concerned about the well-being of the saints. Are we really invested in the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we really care about their spiritual and eternal well-being? Do we care about what they believe? We notice Peter's initiative to write them not only once but two times. And his persistence reflects his attitude about truth and in pastoral care of the flock of God. I don't think that I am, and I wonder if we are persistent in caring about our brothers and sisters and presenting truth to one another in the way that He is. Or perhaps better word than persistent would be are we long suffering? Are we enduring over the long haul? Are we patient and prayerfully present for our brothers and sisters? We should seek their well-being and be willing to reach out to them in the spirit of love and of warning as he does. Take note here the connection between love and truth or love and warning. Peter loves them. He calls them beloved. And he issues this warning from that spirit of love. Uh, Truth today is not usually an accepted metric of diagnosing kind of the comprehensive health of a person. What somebody believes is really kind of up to them and, and truth should be irrelevant. And we, if we observe an error, that's not really acceptable. Peter, on the other hand, sees these grave dangers and errors and he turns and warns the saints. There is, in fact, a virus infecting many in the church. And Peter cares enough... To labor to root out that virus. Notice then his prescription for the virus in the second half of verse 1. In both of them, both of the letters, I am stirring you up by sincere mind by way of reminder. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. A brief skim of Second Peter will reveal that this is not a, a fluffy attempt to win the false teachers over by friendship. And nor was First Peter, which in all likelihood was the first letter. The purpose here, he says, is to jostle their recall. That's important. He's He's stirring up their minds, jostling their recall. They've known this stuff before. They've heard it before but it must be brought again to the forefront of their minds it must be stirred up the language in the esv suggests that he is reminding minds which are already sincere i'm reminding i'm stirring up your sincere mind which you have but i think that the imagery is a little different in, in peter's intention i think for the image that i have in my mind is kind of a a cup with liquid and and the the solids sink to the bottom kind of like a, a Italian dressing, all, all the solids sink to the bottom, and it's got to be stirred up. So he's stirring up what's in their minds, a sincerity in their minds. That way it can be useful to them. And if anybody needs the sincerity of our minds stirred up, I think it's modern-day Americans. The, the old-timers, the Puritans, often warned of of something they called levity. Which I would define a little different than we use it today, perhaps. But they they would be referring to flippancy or insincerity. Um, Not necessarily, they weren't opposed to laughter or, or joy in the appropriate moments. And surely they had a sense of humor as well. But they were concerned, especially on matters of truth and of God, that men, women, and children not be flippant or lackadaisical. And I've noticed, this is interesting, the most esteemed personality trait in our day and age and culture is to be funny. If you meet a new person, what, what do we most often say? I, I liked him, he was funny. How often do you say, I liked him, he was sincere. Have you ever heard that? I like him, He he's concerned about truth and holiness. I, I want to be around that more. Rather, levity seems to be the great personality trait of our time. And sincerity makes people uncomfortable. Sincerity, often, more often than not, is met with sarcasm or, or a deflecting joke. Peter here says, I want to stir up sincerity of mind within you because what you believe and, and what you follow is not a joke. It's important. Peter stirs up our minds so that sincerity would be applied to God and to what God says. Consider the contents of Peter's reminder here. He says that he's reminding them that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. To put it in brief, he wants them to remember their Bibles there are many voices in every age which seek to provide answers to life's questions, but none of those voices can match the voice of God Himself. The prophets and apostles were agents of revelation, the means by which God wrote the Bible. These saints that Peter's writing to were bombarded with a variety of truth claims, and how are they to find direction? And how are we to find direction? Peter does not recommend they get on the Peter bandwagon. If he he did, he would just be yet another truth claim. Rather, he urges them to look back, to remember, to recall what it is that God has already spoken. They are to consider what the prophets said about this issue, what the Lord Jesus taught about this issue, what the apostles who specifically were commissioned to make disciples of Jesus and teach them everything he taught what do they teach about this subject? And what does God say? That's the only firm ground on which a person can stand is what does God say? I had this image kind of pop into my mind this morning. I don't know if it's helpful, but kind of a, an imaginary planet where it's all ocean and then there's one little small piece of land. That's the only firm ground on which you can stand. And and interesting, the the ground rises up through the water and pokes out, and if you were to take a cross-section of the planet, you'd see just a tiny rim of water and the solid ground rising above it as being the bulk of the planet. I don't know if that's a helpful image or not. That might be more confusing than helpful. I don't know. (laughs) So when we are bombarded with various truth claims and philosophies of our day, how do we respond? I fear, as Brian pointed out last week, that we too often adopt those truth claims and philosophies. Do we seek to adopt a posture of purity in the church? Or my concern is more often than not, we seek to strike a posture of balance. sure, Sure, I want to be dedicated to Christ, but good grief, I don't want to be a Puritan. The issue is, are we going to follow the Lord through His appointed means, or will we follow our own desires? Because as much as we kind of want to walk that top rail of the fence, as Michael pointed out this morning, you cannot serve two masters. Brian showed us a good quote at breakfast this last week from Augustine. He said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. And that's so true isn't it? our imaginations are powerful machines and we invent whole new worlds in which to inhabit and we become little gods of our own little universes and it's funny that the rules and laws which govern those universes are strikingly similar to our desires That was the problem in, in, for the false teachers and the scoffers. If we read verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own desires. Their problem was their desires. They follow cor- follow according to what they want. They don't seek the glory of God. They seek the glory of self. They do not adhere to a philosophy and worldview derived from the Bible but they align themselves with the philosophy of the day, which best suits their own needs. Consider for a moment what the Bible has to say about man's desires. We read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. It looked good. She desired it. She wanted it. it. led to the fall of creation. Genesis 4, God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And In Psalm 10, we read, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So knowing then this biblical anthropology of desire, should we, should we follow that prevalent advice of just follow your heart? Should we follow our heart? We all know Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful and above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The things that we want naturally are not the things that God would have us to want. The voices of the false teachers and scoffers uh, will be pleasant voices to unredeemed ears because the wicked desires of one man are really not all that much different from the wicked desires of the rest of mankind. On the other hand, we are redeemed people by the purifying blood of Christ. As such, we have that new man given to us, seeking the desires of God, and we have at the same time that old man, the remaining man of flesh, which, which seeks the desires of self. So we must be constantly sending reinforcements to the new man in that battle which rages within us. And we, we must labor in prayer and in the word by the power of the Holy Spirit that the new man be constantly taking ground against the old man. We must, as Hebrews says, learn by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Least we, like the scoffers, be found following our own desires rather than the desires of God. Peter goes on here, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. So a scoffer is a person who mocks, mocks the things of God and the people of God. There have always been scoffers in the world and even within the church. And Peter points out that especially in the last days, which is the period of time that we are in, there will be scoffers. Jude, for example, gives us a bit of a a survey of Old Testament scoffers. In, In verse 11 he says, Woe to them, speaking of false teachers for they walked in the way of Cain they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain and to Balaam's error and persisted in Korah's rebellion. And in Matthew 24 Jesus warns us and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. These are descriptions of the last days, which I take to be the period between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. This is the period we live in, marked by false teaching. We should not think that because Jesus has come and set up his church on earth that somehow we will be exempted from the false teachers and scoffers who have always played God's people. But in fact, it will be intensified. But we should also be encouraged because we know that, that Jesus is a wise farmer. He tells the parable in the Gospels of of the enemy that came and sowed seed, uh, uh, weeds among the wheat. And when the workers realized there's weeds among the wheat, they said, should we pull the weeds out? And he says, no, at least in gathering the weeds, you should root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus is a a good farmer. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to cultivate his church. Then in verse 4, he says, he gives us some specifics of what the false teachers and scoffers say. He says, they will say, Where is the coming of his promise? Or the promise of his coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These people mock and, and question. they basically say, "Well, what a major event can you point to? On, on what basis can we say something as dramatic as the return of Jesus and judgment will happen?" Hey, really, what's the big fuss over eternity and judgment? Why are you so wound up about that? Ever since those old guys died, those men who prophesied that, and the patriarchs died. things have gone on since they, just like they always have from creation. No big change, no great judgment. Everything goes on. First of all, we might want to point out that that is a very shallow view of redemptive history. I mean, what what would they make of events such as the fall, or, or the exile, or the event of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? These are major developments in the storyline and far from continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These folks, they they really have to Thomas Jefferson their Bibles if they're going to say that. Peter notices that as well and he he hammers them for it. He he points out, what about the flood? Verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What about the flood? They have disregard for the creation account, which speaks plainly of earth and water being separated at God's word, his spoken word. And the best way, I think, to understand this sort of odd phrase formed out of water through water is that the KJV has it earth standing out of water and in water. You can think of God's word as he's peeled back the waters and the earth emerged. That's kind of how I see that phrase. I kind of think of uh, the parting of the Red Sea or the Jordan River, these micro-miracles that kind of reflect creation. But here's what it comes down to, is, is that they deliberately overlook Or some translations say they intentionally forget or are willingly ignorant that God did since creation judge mankind in a catastrophic way. Their their premise is wrong and therefore their conclusion is wrong. God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And what they fail to understand is that God's word is consistent. His word is the word that that separated the waters and pushed up the mountains. And his word is the word that made the waters collapse back and flood and deluge the whole earth in judgment. It's God who decides. And when he speaks, the action happens. So to neglect God's word is not just a failure to, to read God's word, but a failure to understand God's providence because his providence upholds the universe In verse 7 he goes on by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly so God cannot be accused of laziness or inactivity as we wait for that season of judgment. You know, he's not sitting idly by, waiting for kind of some green light to say, "Okay, I can go ahead and judge the world with fire." He, he's not paralyzed with indecision. He's not forgotten the sins of men. He's not waiting around, twiddling his thumbs until he gets bored enough to to go ahead and press the uh, the missile button. He is right now, actively, as we speak, with his strong arm holding back the floodgates of the fires of hell the heavens and earth are condemned and slated for demolition awaiting the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly I think of Jonathan Edwards' sermon The Sinners in the Hands of of an Angry God He, he speaks of the spider held out over the fire and there's one thing and that's the strength of his fingers holding that thread and he could at any moment drop the spider into the flames. It's his decision. And he actively upholds the universe by the word of his power. So one day, he will speak, and judgment will be so. Peter's purpose in all this is to show really the insanity of the scoffers who think us simple-minded and ignorant for believing in a future judgment. They might think us old-fashioned, behind the times and backwards. But Peter proves here, if we are to listen to the Scriptures, we who are sincere of mind believe God when He speaks. And it is they who remain in willful willful ignorance. I kind of think of the many today who would kind of deny the return of Jesus in in judgment, um, the unbelieving portion of the scientific community who would kind of have us believe in a naturalism that everything just falls out from a natural order. Or the spiritually or even philosophically apathetic minds who simply just don't care. They match that description of the willfully ignorant very well. Or in our day, what's been labeled uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, which uh what's his name? Christian Smith kind of identified, he took a survey, he said, what, what do all these religious kids believe? And they, he concluded it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. There, there's a moral element, there's a the- therapeutic element wherein God's here to help me feel better, and a deism, that, that winding of the clock, God, God created it, but he's not interacting in my day-to-day life. All of these and many more disregard the word of God. They are not sincere of mind. They are not concerned to live a life unto God. They are not concerned as to how they might be made right with him. So they follow the passions of their own sensual desire and urge the church to, to sing in unison with them. So then, how are we to respond to all of this? And really, if you just flip over a few verses to verses 11 through 14, I'll give you a little preview because he answers that question perfectly. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot and at peace. So the response I hope this morning that we get from this text is that we should, we should feel the gravity of Peter's reminder It was important enough for him, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to have written about, not once, but twice. We should allow Peter's reminder to be kind of the spoon which stirs up the sediment in in our minds of sincerity. God's word by which he governs the universe is one and the same word by which we are are privileged to hold in our hands and read with such freedom. And it is the same word by which he will one day judge the world. In fire. So to take his word lightly, flippantly, with insincerity can only end in, in disaster. But blessed is